Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Hello, hello. Uh, welcome to this May episode of Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and um, Buildings on Air, it's the show where we talk about architecture, often politics. We've got a good helping of both for you today. Um, here's the outline of the show. In just a couple minutes, we'll be talking uh, with Kate Wagner. Um, you might know them as McMansion Hell on the internet. Um, and uh, we'll be talking about uh, an article that appeared in Common Edge, written by Kate Wagner, uh, called Architecture, Aesthetic Moralism, and the Crisis of Urban Housing. Um, after that, we'll be answering your listener questions about buildings um, in our mailbag segment. Uh, mailbag regular and Louis, uh, one, well, one half of the mailbag regular duo, uh, and Louis couldn't make it, but uh, Craig Reschke still in the in the studio, um, and we answer your questions. Then, uh, rounding out the show, uh, we talked to Matt Machowski, host of Lumpen Radio's WGAS, about the uh, weird monument to fascism that exists in Chicago. Did you guys know about this? It's the, the Balbo Monument. Um, so we talk about that monument, how it came to be, um, and what uh, we should do with it. Because um, having a monument like that in Chicago, I hope we can all agree, um, is questionable, to say the least. Um on that note, uh, producer Julie Wu is in the studio with us, and she's uh, ringing up Kate right now. Um, and I, I hope, uh, while, while we're waiting on that, I just want to uh, wish you guys, all the listeners out there, a happy belated May Day. I hope it was filled with radical action, radical good times, and maybe, hopefully, radical leisure. Uh, Julie, do we have Kate on the line? Yes. Hey, Kate, how's it going? It's good. How are you? I'm doing very well. It's so good to hear you. Friend of the show. This is your second Buildings on Air appearance. Yes. <laughs> well, we're super happy to have you back. And um, uh, I just want to say this article in Common Edge is totally fantastic. Um, uh, again, it's called Architecture, Aesthetic Moralism, and the Crisis of Urban Housing. Um, and so that's that's the topic of conversation. I'm sure we'll go off on tangents and talk about other things. Um, but before we launch into it, how, how are things going? Uh, things are going good. I'm about to give my final thesis defense on Monday, so hopefully that goes well and I can graduate. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, sending you good vibes through the uh, FM airwaves. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah. So um, this article, uh, it's what what is maybe maybe we can start by kind of defining aesthetic moralism. Um, I think, or and, and and maybe you can tell us about aesthetic moralism and kind of what prompted you to uh, write the piece. Sure. So this was a concept that I first heard about in a paper that I read about, uh, in actually a sound studies paper and had nothing to do with architecture, about uh, F. Murray Schaefer's book, The Soundscape, which is really a famous book in sound studies. It's more, kind of one of the foundational texts of that field. And basically, this article argued that uh, in Schaefer's book, he places an emphasis on natural sounds as being somehow moral or better than the sounds made by human beings. Oh, and the person writing the paper, I, I can't remember who it was at this point, took issue with that and said, well, really, amongst human beings... Um, the sounds that we generate are, you know, life-affirming. I mean, you're talking about speech and music and, 
you know, other things that are generally criminalized in the law as being noise. Yeah. You know, people get punished for being too loud, and people get punished for playing music too loud, when the things that are really, you know, terrible, that really, you know, hurt the world are things like traffic or, uh, you know, heavy machinery, things that do uh, damage to, you know, working people and people just uh, living a life in the ambient city. Um, oh, actually, I do know the name. This is actually a book and not a paper. Uh-huh. Uh, the book is, uh, let's see, I have it up here. It is Beyond Unwanted Sound by Marie Thompson is the name of the book. It's a really great book. Um, but anyway, so I was thinking about this uh, idea of aesthetic moralism, which basically is the idea that one type of art or thing that is produced is inherently moral or better than other types of art or things that are produced. Uh, and this is kind of like a logical fallacy, really. Yeah. That the idea that because something, you know, for this is a really common one, but because something is old means that it's somehow better than something that is new, when the reality is is that, like, new buildings for the most part are much more, you know, eco-friendly and uh, generally more efficient than older buildings that are retrofitted. Um, so if you wanted to make an ecological argument, you can say that that, you know, his, uh, aesthetic moralism is invalidated be- because of, by, you know, ecological means. Sure. But mostly people are, are overhyping a certain aesthetic, uh, or they are, um, so in the case that I used, you know, people make fun of these, uh, kind of blocky, dull apartment buildings, uh, as being, you know, either signifiers of gentrification or as just being ugly and terrible, when a lot of the times, like, the housing that is built by HUD uh, is in this form because it conforms to established urban design guidelines. Right. So, um, you know, design review boards have very specific uh, qualities that they look for in new buildings, and these are just, like, the fast-track easiest way to pass those design review board uh, hearings, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, uh, so it's kind of funny to me that, like, these things are really terrible and bad, but, like, most of them are actually, you know, for senior housing or for low-income housing, uh, or the, um, what I should say is that, like, a lot of the buildings built for those purposes look like this. Right. And so by saying that these are all the evil, ugly buildings of gentrification invalidates the good that a sometimes unpleasant architectural style can bring. Um, it's, you know, so I think that we have to look at things, you know, at least materially to be able to, to say like, well, what is good and what is bad? And we can't just look at it from like the point of view of just pure like aesthetic justification. Because I mean, of course people are going to say that like, you know, the apartment building by like, uh, Daniel Burnham or whatever is going to be like the best building ever. And like the new (laughs) building by SOM is inferior or something, you know, it's like the old and the new and we romanticize the old or sometimes we romanticize the new as well. Right. Um, but it's, it's, it it goes deeper than that. Yeah. And you know, maybe just for listeners, I'll, I'll, I think the, the cover image of, of your common edge piece is terrific, uh, a kind of summation of, of these types of projects and, um, uh, listeners in Chicago will probably be in in most places will be able to conjure, uh, some of them to mind. They, yeah, they're, they're usually, you know, four five, six story kind of mixed use buildings where they might have a couple storefronts on the bottom. Um, and then the rest of it is, is, 
his apartments and and uh, they're usually blocky they have several different materials going on in the facade the building form is usually very uh, lightly articulated um, and uh, but but mostly it's the kind of change in materials and this kind of collagey sort of manner um, that makes it look uh, I don't know uh, uh, I don't know. It's it's its main aesthetic signifier to my mind. Uh, it's the thing that makes it look special because the rest of the building is is sort of very cheaply made, and so they just kind of uh, 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 decoupage materials on the outside um, yeah. uh, to 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 give it give it some some look. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think it's interesting. Just uh, you know, this is something that we've been on about in in the show, and I know that you and I have talked quite a bit about. Um, but just trying to divorce the the architectural aesthetic from its political and economic effects, and say that like, hey, they're related here, but they're they're not the same thing. And and to think that is, is a kind of uh, is a kind of hubris. And I, and I think it's interesting, uh, you know, as a case in point, to say that like, hey, this is a singular kind of aesthetic that gets a Applied to, if you really think about it, buildings of a variety of types, but also interestingly is kind of operationalized by NIMBYs and EMBs, the right and the left, in particular ways. Yeah. I think that like one of the main arguments that I make in the piece is to say that you know it's fine if you don't like the style. I mean, you and I personally have talked about this style of building. Uh, you, you and uh, Marianella call it uh, you know SketchUp Contemporary. <laughs> right. You know, I call it developer chic. Like everybody in architecture or around architecture has some kind of pejorative for this 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 style. And you know, that's all well and good. Like that's a way of describe pejoratives are just ways of you know, this is of describing things in a way that becomes recognizable through humor. Right. Uh and so I think that uh, you know, when I say developer chic, most people like have immediately have an idea <laughs> of like what it is I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh but I think that, you know, to politicize an aesthetic is a very risky thing to do. Um, to politicize an aesthetic can lead to, of course, historically disastrous consequences, like the politicization of classicism by fascist regimes, uh, which, of course, is unfair to, to classicism. The Greeks had no idea that Albert Speer was going to be an architect. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I yeah. think that, you know, the politicization of this style is, is something that I think that exposes more a kind of discourse between, I guess, Yimbies, Nimbies, and I guess Fimbies or the left or whatever, because, I mean, leftist perspectives on the housing crisis and what the solutions are are, are actually pretty nuanced and varied. I can't just say that, like, uh, so I, I, I define the left pretty broadly here mm-hmm. uh, as kind of like this kind of nebulous uh, group that uh, basically between all three of these things, which I think, honestly, I think that the NIMBY and NIMBY uh, dichotomy is like, it's a false, I think it's a false dialectic. I th- don't think that like SIMBY or public housing in my backyard is a, is the synthesis of this false dialectic because, I mean, I think that the politics of this goes outside of just the supply and demand question. Right. Um, but my, my opinion is so that I think that by getting into these aesthetic arguments, by being able by saying that like these are ugly and stupid and we hate them, it hurts actually both sides of this debate. The only side it doesn't hurt is like the property owning NIMBY class, right. who <laughs> of course we all know and love from community meetings where the shadow of this apartment building that is two stories tall is going to kill my zucchinis. 
<laughs> uh, I mean, they're basically yeah. the the almost like parody like uh, supervillain baby boomer wasp people who right. own property and do not want their property values to go down. That is definitely a class interest, and it is something that is well known and well defined to both people on the right and the left, yeah, and in the middle, yeah. And so I think that it by having this discussion about aesthetics, it really you're playing into the favor of like those people. Sure. Uh, which is why I think, you know, NIMBY, uh, YIMBYs have been a little bit better at not engaging in that discussion or not in like limb basting the aesthetics of apartment buildings that are proposed for obvious reasons that that's, they have ulterior motives in that. But on the left, I mean, it becomes like a ba- it becomes one thing, which is to say like these are ugly and stupid and you're replacing people's homes and, you know, displacement is an issue. That's one thing. That could be like a political argument without the ugly and the stupid part of the sure. building. But by introducing that the buildings are ugly and stupid into your argument, you open it up to lots of weakness, and you become immediately allied with the people who are keeping uh, developers, and, you know, they're also against things like rent control. I mean, the, these people are not your comrades in any kind of way. <laughs> right. Uh, so I think that by co-opting like an aesthetic moralism it weakens everybody's argument yeah and i think that especially in housing crises that are as dire as the one in california right now where i mean really the right uh like well really the left and like the yimby class which is kind of like a centrist to like moderate left kind of faction uh i think that you know between those two it really comes down to just not knowing what's going to happen if development happens. One group thinks that it's going to be really good and apartment prices are going to go down and this is based off of like a neoclassical economic vision of it. Right. And of course, some others of, of support things like upzoning and then also adding rent control, right? right? So it's like, I mean, it's a broad spectrum of, but the general agreed thing is that the housing needs to be built and yeah. everything else, you know, that's like the primary focus. And whereas on the left, it, it's a little more, uh, rooted in like the historical left, and this is this is a historical basis that the left is coming from. It's not just like something that they decided one day to do because like screw the NIMBYs or or the NIMBYs <laughs> or whatever. Sure, it's because the left has always been rooted in anti-displacement activism. It's always been rooted in tenant rights. I mean, these are battles that the left has been fighting forever since right. like the beginning of the urban condition and like the beginning of the American left. Um, this is. So for them, it's, this is a historical thing. It's more more important that the vulnerable communities are protected than whatever interest that, you know, median income people who need more affordable housing or the need to build more housing doesn't, it comes secondary to that. It's about protecting the people who are there right now. Right. Um, and so both of these arguments are weakened by aesthetic moralism. Yeah. And I think that it, aesthetic moralism prevents important conversations from happening between these two factions. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, my position on it is nuanced and different because I come from a city with a very different housing crisis. Sure. So I'm writing. So I wrote about this to be able to take a kind of neutral position and say, look, this is a bad thing that neither of you should do. <laughs> right. Um, right. Well, yeah, because I mean, at the end of the day, right, like this is it's, it is an argument about uh, like class dynamics and policy and where we should be putting our energy as activists and all and all of these different things. And and the kind of aesthetic is 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 secondary or tertiary. Um, and, and you know, I I think it's interesting, too. You, you talk about um uh, kind of uh, 
Pruitt-Igo a little bit, um, and or, or it's, it's depicted in the article and talk about how um, uh, you know modernism was kind of scapegoated on the basis of its, its aesthetic um, um, for the failure of public housing, um, and well, that's we, we know that's really not the case. Um, you know, we've we've had we've had fantastic interviews on the show uh, uh, talking about that specific issue, um, but but I you know I I'm always kind of mind blown by the fact that architects themselves often kind of participate in this thing uh, because architecture architects think that architecture is the most important thing even when it's doing bad even when they think that it's sort of destroying everything they're like clearly it's because the architecture was bad it can't be a political <laughs> question but it's kind of like a weird commitment to the ego uh, that like you know even even uh, even if it's self-destructive uh, you have to still believe that architecture is the most important thing <laughs> i think it is and i think that also historically it, architecture has been centered as uh, a reason for failure in public housing because it is it's, it's conceived of by others as being apolitical it's like oh it wasn't about race and it wasn't about economics and it wasn't about policy it was just architecture you know yeah uh, and that's both something that is that was a beneficial argument for people who are in favor of public housing to say, like, oh, we can do it, we just can't do it like this anymore. And people against public housing uh, for, you know, obvious reasons because they can stigmatize public housing. Right. Uh, and so, I mean, that's part of that kind of, like, fluidity between sides is why that argument is so persistent. Yeah. And I think that uh, historically, I mean... There's this great uh, article that I think about a lot, actually, on the the blog Failed Architecture, which is a great blog. Yeah. Uh, and I don't actually know if it's still updated, but they had a bunch of essays about about this topic, about failure in architecture, which I think is fascinating. Uh, and the so one of the essays talks about, uh, you know, modernism. It's so, so goofy that modernism is blamed for the fall for public, of public housing when, like, previous, like, you know, blocks, uh, especially in super blocks like in, in Great Britain, for example, like Trellis Tower and, you know, the Barbican, not an example, Barbican was like, kind of always wealthy, but like, the, but like, you know, like Trellis yeah. Tower, which was, of course, like public housing, is now like boutique and it is the place to live. And art, that architecture has been rehabilitated as being desirable. And those apartments sell for like the hundreds of thousands of pounds. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of funny to me, you know, that architecture itself can be rehabilitated. Sure. I mean, you can see this pretty eminently in just the fashions of houses that people buy. I mean, that people were so into mid-century modern houses for so long, just as a result of cultural changes from, like, art and media, were, uh, you know, it's just a testament to the fact that, like, these things that my parents would have said are tacky and stupid are just, like, now, like, culturally beloved again. Right. Uh, and the, it just goes to remind you that art and style and preference is cyclical. And so to blame that, like, something as monumental as the failure of of a system, whether it's an economic system of, of or, like, a policy system of public housing, but the public housing itself is a system. It is a system that's rooted in racial and economic prejudices, and it's a system that was, you know, rooted in just like the system of building, yeah. like the kind of construction quality, who, what architects they pick. I mean, there's like all kinds of stories about, you know, there's the horror stories that, you know, Yamasaki even like was felt so bad about after Prudigo failed. Uh, right. You know, so it's, I think that we get lost in, we don't want to acknowledge those systems. It's difficult to reconcile the fact that talented architects made a project that they, that failed. 
and we yeah. want to rehabilitate those architects. But in the same way, when the stigma has been against architecture for so long, about especially in relation to this, that I think that the discussion has been opened up again, especially kind of with the revival of of, of modernism, just like in the the continued efforts for preservation of modern buildings. Yeah, I think that like the discussion of of mid century modernism is something that's being relitigated historically now, and so I think that it's kind of timely to bring it back up. Yeah, um, so, I don't know if that was rambling, but I, I tried to. No, and and talk yeah, and, and we've talked about it on the show before. You know, there's uh, several uh, uh, kind of amazing like high rises by Bertrand Goldberg in the city uh, 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 that were you know either designed for sort of like lower middle class, middle class sort of family residences or, you know, some that were commissioned by um, uh, the city department of public housing. Um, and, you know, a lot of those towers are still around and, and doing great, although they've been kind of, you know, removed out of the kind of public housing system. Um, but, um, you know, what what made the difference in the in those was was just uh, they, they were better managed and they had more funding for maintenance. <laughs> and like, and Maintenance is the be-all, end-all of architecture. People just think that architecture stops when it gets built, but that's, of course, not the case. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting because I've been thinking a lot about this this type of architecture, and and it's interesting to think about it in terms of maintenance because, like, uh, you know, I've been obsessed with kind of the the codes and regulations that govern these things, like the very technical codes, less so the zoning codes. And, you know, the way that they construct these buildings now, and any building now, um, you know, our, our system of codes is all about kind of assembling building products like flat packed building products and sheet goods and, and films in the kind of right layers. Um, and, I, you know, so I, I have serious questions about the ability of this kind of architecture to be maintained. And I think that this might be the real opportunity for architects um, who are looking to do uh, I, I don't know, kind of architectural, specifically disciplinary architectural kind of activism on this subject to like, I, I wish we would reopen those codes and, and start to look at the way, like the kind of very DNA of the building and the thing that kind of forces us to build that way. Because when we think about cheap building, you have to kind of build in that way. There's no other way to do it. And, you know, yeah. 50 years ago when those codes were non-existent, architects were coming up with all kinds of creative solutions to build uh, uh, cheaply and, and, and with the same kind of economies of scale and everything else. So, you know, I, 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 I think that articles like this really make me think about the ways in which we can kind of revisit the technical in architecture as a site of political action. Because I, I think, you know, from an aesthetic standpoint... There, there's there's not much to do, to do and if you want public housing as an architect then i think you have to advocate for that less as a as a as an architect and more as a kind of citizen right um in in, in general um but yeah i i don't know i you know I, I that's maybe rambly and i don't really have a question but it, it's things that the article I, brought to mind for me i really think about that a lot too actually um I went to this, uh, I think I told you this maybe online, but I went to this cool exhibit in at the Architecture uh, Zentrum uh, in Vienna, and it was all about how building codes, like, shape the built environment. And one of the coolest things that they had in that exhibit was 
that you could walk up stairs of different grades that corresponded to the building codes of different countries. So the, the stairs of the Netherlands are so tiny and they're so hard to walk <laughs> up. Whereas like American stairs are just like big, huge, like wide slabs. Yeah. Uh, and you know, British stairs are kind of in between. It's like, wow, I just really never thought about that. Um, yeah. It's so fantastic. It's really like, and you could, in the, being able to like deal with that tactilely to be able to actually like experience the act of going up all those different types of stairs really does kind of put it in perspective sure. that like these things really do govern the way that we move our bodies in space right that there is an inseparable bodily connection to space and that this is something that ha- has a of an effect on that and it's not just staircases either you know it's like things like you know air conditioning right it's like when we always like take it for granted uh <laughs> fire and insulation um i mean all of these these different these different codes of course uh, you know, the Grenfell Tower the disaster really sure. did bring attention back to uh, the kind of discussion of low-income housing in a way that, I mean, that I think was necessary because it was just so glaringly cruel that they recladded a building for aesthetic reasons in a, in, some, in a way that was dangerous. And if they had not done that and if they had actually spent, like, a small, small sum more to have that cladding fire treated, those people would not have died. Right. I mean, it, literally, like, in this case, aesthetics literally did kill people. Yeah. But it wasn't the aesthetics of the people who lived inside. It was the aesthetics that were put, it was, that were applied to make the building where the poor people lived more palatable, more palatable, sorry, yeah. to the people, the rich people in condos that surrounded the area. So, I mean, if that isn't just a, uh, that is like in a way that aesthetics is absolutely politicized. And yeah. I think that, like that to make you can make an, a moral argument about aesthetics in a situation like that. I mean, because it enters the realm of it, it exits the realm of mere artistic posturing and enters the realm of class struggle and of ethics. Sure. So I think that uh, you know it's not all just. And for to some extent, I think you know codes do help us save lives, especially with fire. Even though much to the chagrin of everybody who ever has, I mean, acousticians, myself included have a very specific bone to pick with codes, with building codes. <laughs> yeah. Things like exit signs buzz, and that drives us insane. <laughs> yeah. uh, you have to have a clearly demarcated exit and an egress door and all this other stuff, and all that stuff makes noise. And it's yeah. so annoying when your hall is so quiet, and then you just hear someone leaving through the egress door, and it's just like, ka-ching, and yeah. you know, we all have our fussy things about that. But I think things like cladding and yeah. uh, you know, fire, fire protection is really important, no matter how much... Yeah. We hate it aesthetically. I yeah. think that, but it is. I think a good opportunity to start and re, to relitigate those codes. For yeah. example, in acoustics, uh, in Canada, the exit signs are uh, are not electric, but uh, made out of basically glow in the dark radioactive material, uh, and they're silent. Yeah. They don't buzz. They make no sound. Uh, whereas in America, they're connected to a power main. Sure. Um, and so, like, there is like a. That is like an actual acoustical difference that is made, uh, that is like key to the area of Canada. So if you go there, you're not hearing something. And if you go here, you are hearing something. So it is like a, a geological marker that is, you know, kind of enshrouded in sound. That yeah. Things are different here than they are there. Yeah, it's super but interesting. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this, but I mean, I think that, yeah, I think that definitely like building codes, some of them like for the purpose of both, you know, aesthetics and for, 
the expediency and the cleverness of architecture, I think, should be opened up. But, of course, I also think that there are some that exist for the protection of people yeah. rather than for the selling of goods. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I really appreciated this this point in the article. Um, it comes pretty close to the beginning where you talk about the distinction between constructive architectural critique and aesthetic moralism. And you say aesthetic moralism is emotionalized and metaphorical. Um, and it's all kind of about a style being right or great or whatever. Um, and then the, the, the constructive architectural critique, um, you know, is really talking about political material and philosophical kind of arguments. And so like the kind of building details right like the the wall section the way that the wall is constructed which is 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 the intersection of economy um code um and aesthetics it's it's all of those things in 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 kind of one 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 drawing really um, i highly agree yeah and so it's, uh, what was that book uh who wrote that essay was it frascari who wrote that essay about the about the Oh, I don't know. I'm blanking. <laughs> oh, but it's about like the be- the detail is like the essence of like the architecture, yeah. and that like in details like we can read like so much about like the process of thinking in, in architecture. Yeah. It talks about like that section where the wall meets the ceiling, and uh, I think it is Frescari. Yeah. But I can't remember the name of the, the detail. I had to read it for my architecture drawing class. Oh, actually, interesting. Where we yeah. were drawing details, and I never thought about it that much before. In, Except for like when things, I've only seen details when they go wrong right, right. through McMahon's help, right? <laughs> sure. But seeing it, like trying to like create one that's right is very difficult yeah. uh, and took lots of tries. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, shout I think out. that, you know, like, can, but going back to your point about like uh, constructive of architectural critique and aesthetic moralism is like, I mean, in the, in, you know, McMahon's help walks a very fine line between those two things and often is uh, tracing. Uh, in one camp and the other. But I think that, like, the key here is to, like, that anything that you do should be rooted in a kind of, at least a cursory philosophical analysis. Yeah. You know, for me, it's like the ugly houses that rich people build so they can live, like, lifestyles of extreme consumption were uh, in the face and for the, and in the face and for the purpose of communicating their own wealth is something that I think is, like, a power structure that is bad and therefore... You know, to mock their feelings for not meeting the walls correctly is, 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 you know, I have no problem doing that. Yeah. But I think it's also an opportunity to make a broader cultural critique more so than an architectural one. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out. But that's Ed- not to say that I don't make digs, you know. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, shout out Ed Ford. Uh, uh, that's that's my go-to uh, for reading on the architectural detail. Um, and I and I like Ed Ford's writing because he he always he's 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 obsessed with architectural details, but he always does a fantastic job of kind of tying them to a larger political material and philosophical kind of context. And he's not an especially political guy, uh, but he does he does have this kind of great quote in in the details of modern architecture where he talks about how the difference between kind of the 19th century and, and early modernism and our kind of contemporary architectural context is that, um, you know, architects have, uh, you know, thought to uh, intersect themselves with the social in a totally different kind of way, Um, whereas before it was kind of thinking about the ways in which things went together and and the people who were constructing buildings. Now we think about uh, behavior and the behavior of the building occupant, Um, and and that really does tend itself to this kind of like very... um, 
I don't know, sort of surface level reading of architectural surface, right? Uh, which is interesting to think about. I mean, I think it's interesting to, you know, like play this kind of like game of trying to read uh, through like an architectural surface something about the people who live there. Yeah. And I think this is essentially what goes on when people make those memes about like, uh, you know, about gentrification and, like, these apartment buildings. It's like they see that, and something about whatever is coded in that aesthetic tells them that yuppies live there, <laughs> when it may be the very opposite. It may be low-income sure. seniors live there. And that, to me, is amazing just from, like, a perspective of semiotics alone. Yeah. Like, what are the signs and systems of signs that say yuppie versus old person? And, you know, how is this, of course, like, coded in this way and i i've been looking at these buildings you know because now it's like bothering me and honestly <laughs> like the, the truth is is that i think it's a function of advertising because i mean a building that looks like this just opened up in uh like near where i used to live in baltimore and it is priced in like the like the three thousand dollar a month range in a city where rent is like that that is probably the maximum rent that you should that anyone will pay yeah because like after that point they, should, they could just live in dc uh, and it's, it's in, it's in that way. It looks like that. It looks, it's that terrible, like skin, uh, pattern, like kind of like post digital look, Yeah. uh, to just, that's just like a cladding on like essentially a dumb box. Yeah. That kind of like weird shipping container aesthetic. And like, yeah, yuppies live there. But <laughs> at the same time around the corner, like three blocks up, there are, there is housing that was built for low income people that looks almost exactly the same. And it's really easy for me to see the yuppies, and it's not really easy for me to see the low-income housing. And I think that part of that is a class thing, because people read new build as for being for the wealthy. And I think that, I mean, to be to some extent, that's true. Mostly wealthy people live in new build architecture, and they expect that poor people should live in something that's run down and looks like crap or looks like crude Igo. And when that's not coding to them, when they don't see those yeah. symbols, then they can't process that but poor people live there sure i think is really transformational in this debate yeah i really think that because people have these internalized like classist ideas of what poor people live like probably from like you know those photos from the great depression that they show you in uh in you know the 11th grade or whatever how the other half lives and everyone lives in like shacks and cabins and tenements yeah but it's you know now like when it does, when something doesn't code poverty in a way that, like, we had conceived it from a very classist perspective, that is something yeah. that has been passed on to us through our own education. That we immediately like go and say, like, rich people live here. Which right. I just think that's amazing. Just from like, yeah, no, a, I, it's a, a it's a brilliant it's a brilliant and like crucially important point. And I and I think uh, you know a, a reminder to to our our friends on the left, right? Uh, like that because because we internalize these things on our own, right? And that's where you get the kind of style of gentrification and all that. And that that is incredibly damaging. Um, and 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 also just like totally kind of mind blowing, and and also kind of like very workerist in the kind of negative sense of the term. When the kind of point of 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 the political project, I hope, is to uh, you know ra raise people uh, like out, out of poverty and <laughs> and 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 everyone kind of deserves a nice thing, right? Uh, and and not just kind of uh, uh, f fetishize it, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think <laughs> I, I also we, we've got like just a, a, a couple of minutes left. Um, I promised that uh, that I would talk about big insulation. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know if that's the best use of, of our last three or four minutes. Uh, frequent listeners of Buildings on Air already know my uh, totally true conspiracy theories about the insulation lobby, which I think do directly impact these kind of uh, aesthetics. Um, but but um, uh, for another time, um, and and you can listen back in the catalog on the on the podcast if you're interested in that. Um, but but I don't know. Do you have any any kind of closing? closing remarks or anything or uh, anything we feel like we, we've left out? One thing I will say is that I really do wish that, you know, first of all, that we move past this aesthetic, which is rooted in like, just like the economy of development. Yeah. Um, and I wish that we could, you know, do something better that is better looking for like, you know, low income people and like the elderly uh, instead of like, this kind of like thrown together box it's like that's not that i think that like because like i guess someone on twitter pointed out that like it's like oh you're just okay with like people living in like ugly things and i was like uh that's not that wasn't the point but i mean of <laughs> right. course in a perfect world everyone would live in like the most beautiful house i would have my little alley house with wood floors and a dishwasher <laughs> and everything would be hunky-dory you know but you know we don't live in a perfect world and the way that architecture exists and is built is a function of the economic system and the society that it is built in. Yeah. And those two things are inextricable. And to try and extract that to make an aesthetic argument is essentially just like a fallacy that ignores the very real material realities yeah. of architecture that's, yeah i guess that's my uh, concluding remark yeah and i uh and, and i think if people want to do something about it i i've got some ideas and maybe you've got a couple more i mean i think if you're oh, yeah. i think if you're an architect um you know you should really start to like think about the detail and all the the ashray codes um that are written by big insulation yeah, i can't ashray i can't help myself too. yeah I just, i'll just go say that yeah. ashray is very sexist yeah. All those things were based on like the hyperbolic rates for men. Yep. That's why buildings are so cold for every gr- every yeah. woman. And that's all I have to say. Yeah, I've got a uh, I've got a piece I, about that. I am not that, afraid that, of that, that's that's Yeah, my, uh, yeah, and I and 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 really like it's written by like the, their codes are kind of written in private. It's not a kind of public regulatory body. And no, so it's not. It's terrible. Yeah. So so the 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 business interests come to dominate. But I think that architects architects can do something about that because I think that that's what leads to the kind of you know when when you have to clad a building in so much pink foam and and everything else. Um, not that insulation is bad, but I think that it's uh, the easiest way to kind of do it um, and then you end up just kind of hodgepodging finishes on on the outside of it and I think architects can do something about that and that's really the key to kind of unlocking this aesthetic question but more more importantly I think that if you're an architect who thinks that public housing and all of these other issues are important um, you know you should like folks should be getting out there and, and organizing fellow tenants um, doing activism around rent control lobbying politicians for public housing, joining the myriad groups that are already out there advocating for that sort of thing. Um, you know, it's it's a kind of extra architectural issue, and we've got to we've got to treat it that way. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, on that note, Kate, thanks so much. Uh, it's it's always a real pleasure talking to you, and I can't wait till the next time. Um, and, I agree. Yeah. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Of course, anytime, anytime. 
All right. So after a little break, we'll be back uh, with Buildings on Air and the mailbag, our mailbag segment. So uh, welcome, 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 welcome to the mailbag from Buildings on Air, um, where we answer your listener questions about buildings uh, and architecture. Um, I'm here with Craig Reschke in the studio. Uh, Thanks for having me back. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the other regular mailbag correspondent, uh, Craig's partner in in crime, uh, Anne Louis, is... Is away in Venice, uh, you know, curating the U.S. Pavilion. Um, so I think we'll we'll be in Venice <laughs> eventually, and eventually, we'll have a fun a fun Venice report back. Um, you know, this little this little neighborhood's making big waves in the architecture scene. It's pretty cool. Um, but uh, we have uh, much more mundane concerns equally important <laughs> uh, questions about buildings. Um, and uh, uh, we have uh, several questions. I'll start with one from producer Julie, um, who is not here because we're pre-recording <laughs> this segment. Um, uh, so we have producer Jamie in the studio with us uh, right now. Yeah. Um, but but as if by time travel, Radio Magic right. has uh, has given us some questions from Julie. Techni- technically, when DJ Wu is, is doing the show on Saturday, Saturday, I will be down the street at Kimsky's for their second anniversary, lugging around an enormous public address system. So, there you go. So, but, but since we were taping this on Friday, uh, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm able to be here, and it's it's a great pleasure to fill in for Anne Louise. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and wherever you are, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to try to help you out. All right. Well, producer Julie asks. Um, I've heard that basement units, uh, garden apartments, are more prone to flooding, and that's why they're cheaper than above-ground units. Is this true? Yeah, you should ask my wife about that. <laughs> <laughs> she lived in a garden apartment at Pilsen for years and lost everything she owned to a flood. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Well, it wasn't so terrible because my wife's a little bit of a hoarder, so it was it was nice to see some of those, <laughs> those thrift more store of a finds. Yeah, it was. It was more of a pruning. So, Julie, it can be positive. If, if you have these kind of tendencies, get yourself a garden apartment, save a little money, yeah. buy some vitamin D supplements. And just wait, wait, yeah, wait for the act of God. <laughs> what, yeah. what do you think of that, dude? Do you think that that is influencing the price? I always thought that they were less because there's just less light and they're yeah. not as nice. I think it's just like a yeah lesser lesser quality of being. Um, but uh, but uh, floods probably factor into that. But like moisture in general, right? <laughs> like water goes to the lowest place, and uh, you live in the lowest place in an apartment in an right. apartment building. So, but it'd probably be a good idea to ask your landlord before renting a garden apartment if it's yeah. ever flooded before. I don't think there's any disclosure requirements for that, so they could lie to you. But yeah, you could at yeah. least at least ask. And there's easy ways to um, make your basement floodproof, at least relatively so. Um, in a garden unit, that's more tricky, um, and nothing is ever fully floodproof. But uh, in the city of Chicago, uh, more often than not, because we have combined sewer overflow, which I think we've talked about in the mailbag before, um, all the stormwater is going to the same place as, as every uh, all, all other kinds of wastewater. And we also have sewers that are relatively high up. So um, in s- when there's severe weather and tons of rain, rain um usually the water pressure is just kind of trying to level itself out and it might be leveling itself out right up through your floor drains and into your basement yeah it's actually uh rare to have basements in chicago flood from water coming in from the outside that you would see on the ground or like that would only happen in kind of like point source but most of it comes up through the floor drains yeah 
which an interesting thing that I learned from my old neighbor was that he um, he basically took a, a piece of four inch PVC and sealed it into his floor drains to yeah. just raise the level of his floor drain right. by three feet or whatever. Yeah. Um, so his floor drain was no pipe. longer functional, but yeah. it uh, it allowed the water pressure right. to equalize without flooding his basement. Yeah. The other very clever. The other strange thing about that was that he, my basement, uh, directly next door to him, never flooded, and his basement flooded all the time. Oh, so it's like very, um, yeah, very, yeah. very hit and miss which basements flood. Was and this which in ones Bridgeport? Don't. No, it was in uh, Roscoe Village. Oh, yeah. okay. Because here in Bridgeport, a lot of the places, especially along the older streets, have gravity wells to prevent that from happening. Yeah, and that's a that's a really strange, specific Chicago thing. Having this this back well that you're supposed to actually keep full of water to help equalize the pressure. Yeah. If you guys aren't familiar with it, it's actually kind of a cool thing to look up because one pipe goes to the storm train, the other pipe goes to your wastewater, and you, you literally are supposed to keep a water level in there. Like during summer months, you want to go and fill it so there's like a little water lock in there. Hmm. It works kind of like um, a J-trap in a weird way. Yeah. yeah so cool. that when, when a, a large amount of water is coming down from the outside, it doesn't back up into your system. Yeah. Interesting. interesting. Yeah, well, and that's probably yeah. especially important in Bridgeport because of the raised right. street levels, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, the, uh, I mean, and oftentimes you'll see some pumps to deal with this, but not, not really a thing in older houses. Right. Cool. So the bottom line is, Julie, get a garden apartment. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> since, since, since you're graduating uh, the University of Chicago and you're lo- obviously looking, uh, go, get, go get a garden apartment. Uh, Julie also asked a great question, too. Um, uh, how is the architecture profession affected by the 2008 housing crisis? How are architecture departments at universities affected? Mm. Uh, I think enrollment went up at universities because people couldn't find jobs, so they yeah. often went back to get master's degrees. And employment uh, went down significantly in the profession, yeah. uh, especially at, for instance, at the firm I was at. Uh, I think they, we lost like half the architecture staff. Yeah, so it was it was rough. It's like deeply traumatic. I mean, like I, I think like a lot of the activism that we're seeing uh, an interest around sort of labor issues in the profession and uh, all these things, like, is is a direct result of that. Um, like, a, you know, everyone has this in their memory banks of, like, everything going horribly wrong in an instant and uh, <laughs> trying to figure out ways to, like, you know, uh, not have that happen again. Um, and, and uh, yeah. Yeah. It but, was, uh, like, so I graduated from undergrad in 2008. Yeah. And started a new job, was, like, excited about it and, like, Three weeks after I started, they started laying people off, which was like a horrifying experience for yeah. like a first first job. Yeah. Well, I think also like the, the university enrollment went up because people were going back to school because everything was going horrible um, and they couldn't get a job. So good time to get some training. Um, but also like I, I think um, I could be totally mistaken about this, but I know schools are also having a hard time enrolling students now that yep. things are kind of recovered uh, because architecture is seen as like not a very good or stable job to have. So, <laughs> well, I think yeah. it's a combination of like interest in the profession going yeah. down. Like the yeah. AIA seems to be having, I see a lot of like Twitter ads showing up from AIA uh, advertising the profession. Yeah. And, uh, but I also think that when the economy is doing well, people are out kind of earning money, not thinking about going back to school as much. Right. Um, yeah. So it could be a little bit of both. Yeah. I mean, I think that, like, 
I don't know. It did, it totally changed everything. I think. I, I mean, I think that a lot of like the race to the bottom for fees that we see, like, really is a result of two thousand and eight. Like, or I mean, that was a tendency that already existed, but it totally exacerbated it. Uh, and you know, like, it set a new floor for how low architects would go to keep themselves in business, um, which has been uh, had a long term effect on the profession. I also think too that you see this this tend towards consolidation, where um, you know, like all the medium sized firms, especially in Chicago, are disappearing, and you have these kind of large offices that are hoovering up medium sized offices that have a, a a market niche, maybe their healthcare or whatever, and that way they can kind of diversify their practice to be kind of more resilient when everything does go terrible. Yeah, well, it seems like the, um, yeah, all the medium-sized firms are kind of disappearing. And yeah. it's like the the startups, like yeah. Pigeon Studio and yes. Future Firm, <laughs> which are two people, and yeah. then the, like, kind yeah. of big yeah. corporate behemoths. Which is some, like, a phenomenon that Marx t- describes in Capital, like, when, when he's talking about uh, crises in Capital, he talks about this, like, consolidation and everything else. So, um, well, that's it, happening yeah. also all over the in, not just architecture, yeah. but every industry. I mean, yeah. you know, you're in a situation where, what, in the next six months you could see uh, three cell phone carriers down from five if yeah. T-Mobile uh, goes through with Sprint. Fox is being bought by Disney, which effectively in, in the market I came from reduces the sports market to three players. Yeah. You know, so it, that's that's happening everywhere. Everybody's looking for scale. Yeah. And that scale is thought to be insulation against economic shocks. But it's also, you know, and this probably ties into what you're saying, Kiefer, it's also a desire to insulate themselves from uh, other forces and uh, other regulations that right. uh, on a very local level probably would, would hurt, you know, bigger companies' bottom lines. Because if you're a national corporation, you've got a lot more insulation from the whims of things going on, for example, in Los Angeles or Seattle or Kansas City. You don't, you don't have the same pressures that you guys do as, you know, Pigeon Studios or Future Firm or, yeah. you know, the jabroni who worked on my house. Right. And, you know, uh, that's, that's, you know, unf- that's just happening everywhere. I mean, yeah. like, you, you can't even have a... I mean, there's no small grocery players. You know, you used to right. have all kinds of like little bodegas and small independent grocers. There aren't any yeah. anymore. And uh, when Amazon goes full bore into a certain field, that really changes the equation too. Yeah. So I wonder if Amazon, if Amazon goes into architecture, you guys should. Are, uh, you yeah, guys yeah. People are people are talking about this with like WeWork and and companies like this are like offering like spatial services that, uh, you know, uh, architects have just done nothing but sort of give up our professional territory though for like 50 years where yeah. we d- we disrupted ourselves out of a job <laughs> <laughs> but you know uh also specialization is good i think that there's positive effects to it but um you know i i think uh it's still a very turbulent moment um Anyway, Julie asked really good questions, <laughs> and I think we should ask some dumb ones. <laughs> uh, there's no dumb questions. Uh, maybe the mailbag proves that wrong. <laughs> but but um, uh, let's see. Let's see. Uh, well, th- this this question is a uh, a two parter. Um, oh yeah, um, the the questions came in about a week apart from each other. <laughs> so um, take from that what you will. Uh, part one. Is it safe to stockpile coal? Because you never know. Ellipses. <laughs> I would say no. Yeah. It depends where you're stockpiling it. Well, Does this person live in uh, 
rural Illinois somewhere, or yeah. do they live next door to us in Bridgeport? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would I would actually say yes, it is safe because where I grew up in in Scotland and Northern England, you had coal stockpiles, and they still do today. Now, I'm not advocating necessarily the burning of coal unless you're making pizza, in which I do advocate. <laughs> but but stockpiling coal, I mean, you have it in your basement. It's not the greatest thing to have around, but it's not necessarily going to kill you as long as you don't you know yeah. aren't licking it or letting it near your water supply yeah so i, I would disagree with you on that it, it's it's been well, in you know it's been around. Yeah. well uh, you can look around chicago and see on the back side of a lot of buildings these like metal trap doors that were for coal mm-hmm. delivery um before we were all hooked up to natural gas systems yeah so yeah i don't think it's like uh super dangerous but it seems well, like safer than storing like most... <laughs> buckets of kerosene or something right yeah, yeah. i would i would put the coal before the kerosene what i would not do is ignite the coal in your house yes well and this is maybe i think you need to have a well ventilated space which leads to the second part of the question which was asked a week later um I don't know if it was the same question asker. I can only assume so. Uh, what do you do if there's too much coal dust floating in the air? <laughs> uh, you get the black lung. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe rethink your coal storage options. Uh, yeah, but coal dust is combustible. Yes, yes. And and that so that is you. I think you do want to make sure that you don't have a lot of coal dust floating in the air. Right? Yeah. Well, I, I think make sure it's in a a sealed room of some sort. Like yeah. that's something you often see in old Chicago basements is like right. the coal storage room. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Jamie, what do you think? Well, I mean, I have one of those in my old house. Uh, we had the side thing. And it is. It's a sealed room basically with a door to go in and go out. Um, as I recall, it had a lower ceiling deliberately mm. that went back to about 1917 or whatever mm. so that it would give you that buffer between that and what was i guess a bedroom or a kitchen maybe above it i see but you yeah i mean of course you would have used that to heat your house centrally and probably cold us wasn't the biggest concern because people didn't know about it yeah but i mean if you're i mean look i don't know what this person's doing with all this coal <laughs> you know? it sounds like they're a prepper <laughs> well maybe i would i would recommend building a nice outdoor uh, pizza oven <laughs> and using using that coal in your pizza oven. yeah and then that'll solve both problems and you'll have delicious pizza yeah but i think if they're really a prepper don't stockpile coal stockpile some solar panels ah true good point we have a question about this uh Thinking about upgrading my roof, do you think I should add solar to it? That's a, that's a tough question right now, actually. That's a hard question. I mean, I think that there's a lot of criteria that have to be met for solar panels to be like cost-effective and like genuinely environmentally friendly. Well, I think it has to do with your intentions, right? Like, If you are a prepper and you are worried about the... Uh, power grid shutting down and you want to be able to charge you know your stun gun or whatever then you should probably it's a taser. Taser. <laughs> my taser <laughs> then you should probably install the solar panels but like if you're just looking to to save a buck i think it it uh, depends yeah. a lot on subsidies most of which are i think going away gone, at this yeah. point yeah. yeah the delta is very poor on solar right which is a shame because solar actually for a while was a pretty decent deal i think the subsidies in illinois were about 30k yeah and that basically covered most of the install and you would earn back after about i was going to say 15 years and you would you would see it you know you'd see a dent in your electric bill um i guess the question is 
how much is your electric bill? How much electricity are you consuming? Because here we don't use electricity to heat. I think in Illinois, it's a much poorer argument for solar than it would be, say, in California, yeah. which doesn't have natural gas right. lines. You know, There, it makes a lot of sense to put up solar and to take the immediate They energy. also have more sunny days, uh, which helps, I mean, uh, right. you know, Chicago, Chicago is cloudier than London, if you that's count correct. the hours up, which is... Yes, 79 sunny days a year, I think we have. Yeah. I think that's what it is, total. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the other thing you don't want to do, and this is something that may go into this, there are companies that are looking to install solar panels, and they'll pay for it and rent them to you, and that turns out to be a spectacularly bad deal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's something you don't want to do. Yeah. But if you're, if you're, I mean, not even if you're just looking to charge that taser, there, <laughs> is, there, is, there are solar systems that make sense. If you... If you really actually have the money to spend and you can heat hot water with it and yeah. you can make it a passive heating and cooling system that has solar and you know, you've got what? That's probably 50K right there to, to spend on it. Yeah, I mean, it's very environmentally responsible. And if you get a good system, it's going to last you a long time and it's pretty cool. Yeah. But is it as efficient as paying ComEd you know, or, or people's gas, what, 50 bucks a month? Yeah. Probably not. But it makes you feel, if it makes you feel better, then right. sure. Right. But unfortunately, Trump's killed all the subsidies for this stuff, which yeah. is a, a disaster, because he's not so concerned about coal dust storage, right. <laughs> and, right. and he's, he's trying right. to encourage right. coal consumption, you know, to come back. So. Yeah. But I think heating is actually a good thing to talk about because, and this goes back to we've talked about the Michelle Addington text in ecological urbanism before. Yeah. Um, but kind of, uh, it is, it is. Uh, in inefficient, I guess I will say, to use uh, electricity generated by solar to heat your house because the electricity generated by solar is a very high quality electricity. It can run your electronics, your computers, mm -hmm. your television, all of those things. Yeah, and to then use that to generate heat, um, there's a kind of very big energy penalty. Mm -hmm. So if they're interested in kind of uh, a more sustainable house or being able to heat their house after the zombies invade that I think like <laughs> looking at a geothermal system that uh, just yeah. runs a small pump off of the solar but uses the kind of heat of the earth's crust uh, to heat the house is probably a, a better yeah. route to go. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think it really depends on, on where you are because so much of this stuff is just like, like hyper contextual. Like if you don't have a good South facing roof, it's never going to be worth it for you to install solar. Um, so, like, yeah, like uh, you know, as, as it comes back <laughs> all too often, uh, you know, look look to an expert, uh, or at least you don't even have to do that. But like, you do do your do your homework. Right. right. One well, one thing I will say about expertise in solar is that um, so I did an installation at. Uh, a park in Austin, Texas, mm -hmm. um, and we wanted these kind of lit up balloons. There was no electricity, so we built a small solar system. We basically got three solar panels, a couple of batteries, and together in like a, uh, uh, what do you call like the plastic bins that you store things in, like a, a really rubber big, yeah, yeah, like yeah. a rubber yeah. Main. Yeah. Um We had a, a transformer, a, a battery, and an inverter, and just like out in the middle of this forest made electricity that could like charge my iPhone and <laughs> run these little LED lights. And it was like, it was just so simple to put it together. It was yeah. really um, an enjoyable project. And it was kind of like, it feels like it's magic. Like you have this like 
plastic seeming panel and suddenly yeah. you hook it up to the system and there's electricity so there is I think something really um, yeah. exciting about that. Like a potato alarm. Shout out to American Science and Circle. The only other thing I'm, I'll add is there's a lot of uh, complex mathematics in solar panels. Yeah. There are ways that you can change the efficiency of solar panels if you have a program or a programmer that knows how to calculate shadow areas and stuff like that. Mm. A quality solar installation actually should be mapping how the sun hits your house and your roof over uh, basically a 12 to 18 hour period and doing a mathematical model because that actually maximizes the efficiency of the panel. Mm. If you don't have that and you don't have kind of an active um, program running that, you lose an enormous amount of high quality electricity. That's, that's something people actually often overlook and it's a, it's a pretty critical detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want to have some kind of brain controlling how you're running this. Uh, funny story about solar is I recently, so I just taught a studio at University of Illinois on um, solar installations as public landscapes. Um, but as part of that, we went to look at the UIUC solar farm, mm. which was installed, I guess, uh, two or three years ago. But it was an open bid process, and the company that installed it um, was based out of Phoenix, Arizona. Mm. And they basically have this... Um, they have basically giant bolts that they set the solar panels on top of, and they have a machine that comes out and just like twists those giant bolts into the ground, and that's the legs that hold the solar panels. Uh-huh. But because they were an Arizona-based company, they didn't take frost action into account, uh-huh. so they put all of these like shallow metal poles into the landscape. And of course, it was like a former farm field, so it was like quite soft. And yeah. over the like past two years, the freeze thaw cycle has like moved all of these yeah. things up and down. So now you go out there and look in the solar panels instead of being like uh, straight, <laughs> or, like, all wavy. <laughs> yeah, that does not seem g- good or efficient. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm sure it like knocked knocked some efficiency out. Yeah. Uh, shall we move on? Speaking of warmth, um, when they say a room feels cold, do they mean it literally? <laughs> what? <laughs> when when certain furniture and the wall color and interior design is cold, does that literally mean cold is in the temperature or cold is in it gives off a negative emotion figuratively leaving you cold? I think neither of those things. I no. think it is a color that is uh that represents a kind of cold it's feeling. Cool colors. Yes. Blue hues. Yes. A cool tune. That's a tongue twister. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I also think that there might be something to it. I mean, like, you know, I think when I think about, like, I don't know, like there's a there's a difference between sort of like minimalist modernist modernism with lots of like glass and concrete and things like that. And that is like all, a lot of those t- uh, sort of a lot of that interior architecture like does come with cool tones, but like concrete is also like quite literally like cool to the touch and i think that like uh when i first read this i was like oh this is a silly question (laughs) um but but i think there might be something to it right i mean like there's a reason why we like assign cold and hot as like adjectives to like uh those colors uh like like you know the eames house is also like very modern but it's like no one would ever say that it's cold because it has lots of like warm colors and it's filled with like stuff and like and it's like a mile from the beach in santa monica right 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 (laughs) yeah uh yeah i think that's actually interesting and i uh, i have uh thermally active surfaces in um in architecture on my desk right now yeah uh which i think covers a lot of those topics exactly that like concrete uh and a lot of materials used in uh 
modernist buildings that we might describe yeah. as cold yeah. like, actually have a, a mass to them that makes them cold to the touch. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting too because I feel like I feel like like cold design like this room feels cold has like a very negative connotation but like that's something that's socially constructed i think too like i i I don't mind a cold building maybe that's why people hate architects though i mean you you hear this all the time about like you know modern architecture brutalist architecture being um kind of an, an affront to people's sensibilities and all about the architect's ego but i i think that there's a deeper social history there I don't know. We talked about it on the show a few times, um, this sort of thing, people's, the popular reaction to modern architecture. But um, I don't know. There's probably a dissertation somewhere <laughs> in there. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> you can uh, cite buildings on air. <laughs> I don't know how you cite a radio show. I'm sure there's a, there's well, there's a way to do yeah, it. Yeah. I'm sure the Chicago Manual of Style. Yeah. Is, uh, right. <laughs> yeah you just got to get a transcript probably. Yeah. 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 We should publish you, some transcripts. Do you yeah. make transcripts of this? That sounds incredibly painful. No, it painful. does sound taxing <laughs> um, and time-consuming. Well, there is a transcription. <laughs> there are transcription services. Yeah, and people, you could you could have the radio shows on Lumpen Radio transcribed, but um, so far, no one has actually inquired as to whether they can get a transcription huh. of our show. Maybe gotcha. maybe they will be one day. It's a thankless job. I've had to do transcription. Anyway, it is going off the rails. Um, <laughs> coming back around. <laughs> um, I have another question. I have several questions. Oh, here we go. Very uneven plywood subflooring. The subfloor is set on joists. The room is 12 foot by 10, and my issue is that half the room is level but starts going downhill about halfway to the wall. From the level center point to the lowest point is a ha- one and a half inch difference which is consistent with the entire length of the room. I'm not sure what to do about leveling it out. I've read various things, such as leveling compound or sanding the high spots, but neither seem very applicable in this situation. Was this said also from Julie, who's sitting in Studio K, looking at our, <laughs> our plywood floor right here? That sounds like another Julie question. No, it, it is not, but it is a good question. Well, I think the first thing to do is go in your basement, if this is on the first floor, and see if the joists are uh, are warped or if it is indeed the subfloor. Because yeah. if it's the joist, that's like a much bigger problem. If it's the subfloor, it's more fixable. Yeah, if it's the subfloor, you can just probably even shim- throw some shims between your joists and your uh, subfloor. Um, that, that would be a kind of janky way to fix it, but not really all that different in principle from what a contractor would do to fix it probably yeah i think with an inch and a half uh using some sort of leveling compound it would probably be too too yeah. much yeah leveling yeah because that's that's an inch and a half of leveling compound which is n- money that you don't have to spend and also extra weight on your floor which could right. actually exacerbate the issue uh but it is important when you're replacing your floor to make sure that you have a good base which Kiefer and i can attest to because yeah. they just replaced the floors in our office our landlord did and rather than taking out the warped underlayment which was what was causing the floors to fall apart in the first place they just put the new floor on top of the old floor, and now, <laughs> as you walk across it, it goes up and down like uh, yeah, like you're walking on a piece of paper. That's great. That's a classic Bridgeport way. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. That's yeah, it's totally a little. Uh, yeah, it was like a little bouncy, and I, I think Anne asked uh, the 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 flooring contractor. Don't you feel like this is a little bouncy? And he replied that it was a floating floor. <laughs> so you know, when you put when you put some furniture down on it, it'll be fine. <laughs> Which is not really how any of those words work. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, say la vie. <laughs> it does. It, it to his credit, it, that did happen a little bit. We put some floor, uh, some furniture back down, and it is less bouncy. Things have kind of settled out, but um, I think there'll be some long-term issues. You uh, still can't really open the front door when there's a rug there because that's of true. the interest <laughs> type. Right? Yeah. Flip side, uh, the floor is now the doorstop. <laughs> why? Why did they not just? I mean, it's not that hard to rip the floor up. No, and put a new plywood on. It like this is going to start some sort of rant from my end, but like, right. yeah, it's I. Why not? You like could have, especially. I think what the I think what happened is there were stick down twelve by twelve tiles, and they started trying to scrape those tiles off. And they decided that taking each tile off was too difficult. But if they would have found the seams and the subfloor, many of which were exposed because of the like the, the horrible nature of the floor that we had in there, right. um, yeah, they could have just lifted up four by eight sheets. They were all put in with just um, like large, had short galvanized nails that I mm-hmm. think would have been easy to pull out. But yeah. I think they just like didn't understand the system. They wanted to get it done in a day, and uh, I rushed rushed through it yeah. yeah i mean they should have just taken it down and put plywood sheathing on it and then laid it was with pergo right yeah it was the pergo that ann won for being the cover girl of uh the magazine right i i wish <laughs> no actually per i don't know do i want pergo i don't think so uh here's another flooring question what is the best wood for outdoor flooring in a location with high humidity levels. Um, are we talking about a deck? Seems like a deck, yeah. Mm, I guess. Uh, Probably. <laughs> I'm kind of at a loss. Yeah. Probably, right, well, teak would be ideal. Teak is good. not going to do that. Pressure treated, but, obviously, yeah. is what everybody would go with. Yeah. I would, but pressure treated is, like, so toxic. Yeah, it's yeah. super toxic. One time my brother got a splinter of pressure treated mar- uh, pressure, pressure lumber from our childhood deck and he had like m- like these wild like red parallel stripes oh. running up his leg it was like some Stop. weird gross reaction Stop. to that Stop. yeah um but it, yeah i think there are like if you're if you take care of just en- really, really any kind of wood i mean you know maybe upgrade a little bit from pine but um uh it'll it'll last well um but uh i will i will also suggest ipe ipe is a kind of wonder wonder mm. lumber um that's high, like highly flame resistant but also uh extremely durable um outdoors just that's in a, general that's a good thought it's a little expensive you have to um Make sure that you space it correctly, though, because it really expands. Yeah. So I've seen it installed on decks before where people space it the kind of the width of normal deck boards, mm-hmm. and then it expands and squishes together, and then you have water puddle on your deck. Yeah. So make sure to follow the, yeah. the installation instructions. Yeah. And also, Ipe is not always the most beautiful of woods, I will say. It, it can be really nice, but uh, a lot of times it weathers extremely well and dirt and it, it doesn't fall apart, but it does end up uh, getting turning like really gray in the sun. Yeah. Um, and that can be kind of ugly depending on the rest of your look. Mm. Yeah. Um, shall we answer one, one more? You got time for one more. Cool. Um, <laughs> okay. I cleaned my window AC and now it won't turn on. I finally got myself to take my window AC outside and do a deep clean. I hosed out the inside and the coils, let it dry, <laughs> oh, and then put it back together. Whoops. Now it won't turn on. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why, buddy. <laughs> 
I, I plugged it in and it won't turn on. No lights or beeps like it normally does. I thought I did all my research and it said to hose it down, but did I just completely ruin my AC by doing that? Sounds like they <laughs> did something to the electrical system yeah. inside. Yeah. I, don't don't do that. Don't, yeah. Don't hose down your. Like maybe like old old window air conditioning units that are like you know you have a mechanical sort of thermostat like and temperature setting system. You could just go nuts with the hose on, um, and even then probably not a terrific idea because <laughs> there's still you know some sort of electro resistance thing that you know works. Uh, but but yeah, um, I think it's safe to hose out parts of your window AC as long as you're not getting the electronic the, the parts. Backside <laughs> that gets rained on. Yeah. It, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but not, yeah, not no. from the front. Don't just blast the whole thing. <laughs> just don't, don't throw it in the water. <laughs> yeah, uh, general rule of thumb: if it does like beep and boop and have lights, <laughs> probably you don't want to put a hose don't, near don't it. Don't soak it in water. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, yeah. This is your uh, exceedingly obvious buildings on air advice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're here to help, folks. We do get a lot of questions about window AC units. It's like uh, once a month, man. Yeah, once, once a, a month, month without fail. Mm-hmm. We could put a window AC unit in here, right? Mm-hmm. In studio. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we need to get a window AC unit and like completely take it apart and do some sort of like nice exploded axon, so we can talk about each individual. Oh piece. yeah, like a, a diagram with with exhibits. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And maybe we need to do some experiments about just like running one inside a sealed plastic box and see, <laughs> see what happens. Yeah, I'm done. The 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 buildings on air think tank <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> running useless experiments <laughs> with no air conditioner. We're going for that area. That's right. Oh, we did have an area to give out, right? Oh, we did. Who was it? Um, oh so man! Exciting. Oh, we have an area yes, right? it was. Um, it's uh, what's his name? He runs uh, the plumbing plan review, and his name is uh, something Wolf, uh, Michael Wolf, maybe. Michael we'll Wolf's we'll roll with it, Michael Wolf. You're this month's Buildings on Air Airy recipient. Congratulations for being a public servant that makes us proud to be in that public. <laughs> yeah, keep having a positive attitude about those plumbing plan reviews. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. amazing to talk to someone that's both interested in what they're doing and yeah. more than willing to like hand out their advice. Yes, um, I think I think uh, all of our area recipients. Uh, his name is Martin Wolf. Martin Wolf. Martin, Martin, Martin Wolf. Wolf. I think both of our area recipients to date have been um, from the city uh, w- water division of, in some way. Yes, shape or form. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah the rest the rest of y'all code reviewers need to step it up. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, don't just leave it to those water don't jockeys. Just leave it on, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Wolf, your area is not a mail. <laughs> well, on that note, I think uh I think that wraps up this uh, this mailbag. Um sure. and uh, as if by radio magic, although this segment is pre-recorded, um in a f- just a few minutes, you'll be hearing um um Matt Machowski, host of WGAS, talking about uh Chicago's Balbo Monument. So stay tuned for that. Hello, and welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn. And uh, we have um, this excellent segment coming up for you. Um, I'm here with Matt, host of WLPNLP's WGAS. Uh, when does w, w Gas on? <laughs> uh, so WGAS stands for Who Gives a... <laughs> <laughs> that was a really abortive beep. but <laughs> And... Uh, we're on first and third Sundays from 3 to 5 p.m. 
Uh, you can also listen to previous episodes on our Mixcloud page, mixcloud.com slash WGASChicago. Yeah, so this is the uh, the second half of the uh, WGAS Buildings on Air crossover. Um, yep. yep, I was on your show uh Two, two, three, four weeks ago, or something. Was, yeah, not too long ago. Yeah, it was. I had fun. It was a good time. Good time. Yeah, got to ask you a whole lot of questions about architecture and and uh, you know played some music. And yeah, had a good time. I'm a, uh, yeah. It was. I had I had a blast myself. And uh, listeners of Buildings on Air should certainly navigate their way over to that Mixcloud and uh, check out that episode and uh, the many other excellent episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm excited to have you here today in the studio mm-hmm. uh, to talk about this weird thing that exists in <laughs> Chicago almost inexplicably. <laughs> that uh, uh, I, I understand you you have a. a um, I don't know, a relationship with. <laughs> I guess you could call it that. An anti-relationship, maybe? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a hate-hate relationship. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, Chicago, very uh, progressive city, city of immigrants, yes. uh, city with a long and storied labor history, and it's also a city... one. As far as I know, pretty much the only city in the United States that still has a monument dedicated to fascism in the city. That's right, folks. Mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so in the uh, 1933 World's Fair was here in Chicago. It was billed as the Century of Progress. Yeah. And part of that. Uh, uh, one of Mussolini's top Air Force, you know, uh, people, yeah. uh, uh, Italo Belbo, uh, did this whole big stunt, publicity stunt, where he flew this squadron of flight, you know, Italian fascist fighter planes from Italy across the Atlantic, landed in Chicago, and, you know, they had all these festivities around it. Uh, they had a uh, Native American chief give him a, give Belbo this uh, headdress, <laughs> all right? Oh, uh, they had a state dinner that the State Department put together, and Belbo donated a, uh, you know, ancient Roman column uh, along with a plaque that goes with it. Uh, it still stands today, just a little east of Soldier Field, and the city then uh, renamed one of the streets after him, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, every year, uh, you know, uh, there's the Columbus Day celebration here in Chicago. Yeah. And every year it starts at the same intersection of two famous Italians, uh, Columbus and Belbo. Oh, goodness gracious. There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and... You know, I don't know if you saw the um, the episode of uh, Adam ruins everything about Columbus. No, I didn't. Um, it, you know, I, I really enjoy that show. Um, it, it's on was the Independent Film Channel, or yeah, whatever. Um, but, but yeah, he had one uh, about Columbus, and he really uh, broke down. Uh, you know, all the atrocities that Columbus was responsible for, uh, massacring Native people and, yeah. and such, uh, but also why he was sort of rehabilitated and became this icon for Italian people and and the kind of disconnect between, you know, the actual history there 
and you know what people held him up as uh and you know there's a similar kind of disconnect uh with this uh Belbo issue today yeah where you know there's uh, some and and you know there always has been right. this disconnect where you know p- there would be some in the Italian community who would hold him up and say oh it's a uh, he's a symbol of Italian progress right and uh you know meanwhile you know no he yeah he, he was one of the people who like precipitated or helped precipitate Mussolini's rise to power <laughs> yeah <laughs> which uh, is wild <laughs> yeah so you know i I wrote a, a blog about this uh, when I was still in college, and uh, you know the uh, you know one one of the things people forget is you know Belbo literally you know assassinated pro labor priests yeah. in rural Italy, right? He helped form the uh, was it the Black Shirts? Yeah. Right? Uh, I mean, this isn't just uh, you know people play this revisionist history where they sure. try to say. Well, how could you know that it would be so bad? And and you know, really, the the Italians aren't as you know they weren't as crazy as the Germans. And and right. you know, really, it, if you look at the history, it's it's all right there from the beginning. Sure, massacres, <laughs> yeah, uh, exe- you know, uh, executing labor workers on strike. Uh, like I said, assassinating priests. Yeah, um, you know, sounds like a great Italian, right? Yeah, right. Uh, and and so you know a uh, couple of, you know when i was in college yeah i know some of this stuff but uh, you know i i you know joined a a protest on uh, columbus day right uh-huh. and you know it was a, a number of uh, latino uh, groups were supporting it uh there was a uh, like a, a dance troupe that you know did like a like a uh I don't know what you'd call it, but you know, like an old, uh, uh, like a like a like a Native American dance of some kind. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, I remember a lot of that during the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. Yeah, yeah, so, uh, sort of like that. And uh, you know, so a couple of us students are, are you know, kind of protesting to the side of, of the Columbus Day Parade, uh-huh. and Mayor Daly walks by. Uh oh. And, uh, you know, we all start shouting at him, like, hey, stop gentrifying our neighborhoods. Um, at the time, there was a big fight to prevent Send High School from becoming a uh, military academy. Yeah. So we're shouting about that. And, and, you know, I knew a little bit of the history of, of the Balbo Street. And, yeah. And so I said, hey, why don't you rename Balbo, you know, Avenue after someone who's not a... Fascist. <laughs> yeah, seems like a good idea, <laughs> and uh, like a no-brainer, really. <laughs> and uh, you know, the the uh, older cop on the Segway did not like uh, my language, <laughs> and you know, he uh, you know had me uh, handcuffed oh, and uh, thrown in the back of a, a squad car, uh, and it was too funny because these uh, two cops in in the squad car were. You know, just swearing like sailors. Yeah, right? they're like, "Oh, did you hurt Richie Daly's feelings?" <laughs> you know, and they're like doing this, like kind of uh, mimicking of his voice, and oh, they're like, yeah. "Oh, too bleeping bad." <laughs> oh, what happened to the first bleeping amendment? You know, <laughs> they can't arrest you for that bleeping bleep. And, and I'm just like, hey, "You guys said it, not me." Uh, <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, you know, they they wrote me a ticket basically uh, for what? Uh, uh, like it was like misdemeanor disturbing the peace, uh-huh. um, and you know it, it was it. At the same equivalency of, like, a parking ticket, basically. <laughs> uh, like, technically, they didn't even arrest me, so they didn't, like, do my fingerprints or yeah. photo or, like, process any of that. Um, so, yeah, they uh, wrote me a ticket, and I sh- actually showed up to challenge it. And yeah. I, I brought uh, one of my friends who was uh, a lawyer and a yeah. member of the National Lawyers Guild. Uh, good people at the NLG. God yeah. bless them. Yeah. And they just threw it out. Nice. You know, um, so... You know, it was it was always one of those uh, things that I tried to kind of remind people about. Yeah, you know, I, I wrote this blog about it. I, I you know, we uh, ran an article about it in our like student newsletter. Um, yeah, in our activist student newsletter, and uh, you know, I was kind of thinking, you know, last year I was like, you know, I, I when you know when I was. A, detained for that <laughs> there weren't all these online e-petition things yeah um you know it'd be pretty easy to start one up yeah get a little bit of traction you would think that you know uh, it, it's a it's a no-brainer winner of an issue yeah. uh and that um you know like maybe we could get some traction on it yeah right? for sure uh i felt like the problem was people just didn't know about it yeah right and so, uh, you know, I started uh, thinking about that, and then Charlottesville happened. Yeah. And, you know, so much of that was about, uh, you know, taking down this Confederate monument. Sure. And I was like, got to strike while the iron's hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I made a petition on change.org. Uh, we got over 300 signatures so yeah. far. And... Uh, you know, there's been a couple of articles about it. Um, looks like there's, uh, you know, been some progress about it, but uh, you know, not quite as much as we would like. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's really interesting that the the you would think that even it, like it's this is not just like a weird weirdo leftist cause either right i mean like <laughs> you know like i, I feel like i feel like i i'm i'm kind of shocked that uh, you know like veterans groups like aren't all over this and like you know different people uh, organizations like that um you know i, I think also especially in sh- the political context of chicago you have a lot of um sort of like pretty centrist democrats who are looking to score like easy progressive points um, because of the, you know, they know which way the wind is blowing mm-hmm. um, in, in this town and across the country. And uh, this seems like an easy way for them to do that, one would think. Yeah. Uh, so, so um, you know, I have a couple of articles pulled up yeah. there, um, you know, some of my notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I mentioned that, you know, this Roman column had a plaque that was donated along with it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's really blunt in its uh, language, right? There's nothing subtle about, you know, saying this column 20 centuries old, fascist Italy with the sponsorship of Benito Mussolini presents to Chicago in honor of the Atlantic Squadron led by Balbo, which Roman Daring flew across the ocean in the 11th year of the fascist era. (sighs) 
All right. I mean, yeah. it is a a celebration of you know this this monstrous ideology, and it's a dedication to something that you know uh, thousands of Americans fought and died yeah. to to you know wipe from the face of the earth. Yeah, and it's it's really an outrage that we we have this thing on full public display. Yeah, uh, you know it's. Uh, one one of the uh, you know articles I I found recently um, since there's been more interest around it uh, you know uh, they had this uh, quote from uh, one of the uh, candidates who ran for mayor mm-hmm. in 1946 right? yeah uh, Russell Root. <laughs> who I had never really heard of. Yeah. But they he had this quote that I thought really nailed it. Um, he said, Chicago boys of Italian descent who fought in Italy do not wish to honor the fascist who betrayed his own people as well as conducted a war against our country. Yeah. It's, there you go. 1946. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, in that time, with the effort to you know, rename the street and, and you know, take down the uh, column. Uh, you know, the Veterans of Foreign Wars were pushing to uh-huh. take this down. The uh, Illinois, you know, Parent Teacher Association <laughs> was behind this effort. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the things a lot of the supporters of this column will try to say is, oh, but there were so many people who, you know, uh, they they do this historical revisionism. Yeah, where they try to act like it was this uncontroversial thing at the time because people didn't really know how bad fascism was, and yet when they installed the column in 1933, when Balbo came to Chicago, yeah. uh, you know, there was the Italian League for the Rights of Man and the Italian Socialist Federation were were flyering right. against it, right? Yeah. Uh, trying to point out. Uh, just how awful uh, fascism was, right? And, and this is in '33, so right. you know it's. Uh, I mean, what, like eight years before we got into the war? Yeah, yeah, more or less. Um, so, you know, I always tell people, you know, that f- uh, first issue of Captain America, <laughs> where he's punching Hitler. Yeah, right. That came out like what? What two years before we got into yeah. the war? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, I I think if Captain America was smart enough to figure that out, like these people yeah. were smart enough to figure it out, those are the sort of people we should be yeah. honoring. Yeah, well, and it's it's always interesting the way that like sort of uh, like uh, uh, like European ethnic identities get kind of reduced, like in this in the in the process of you know um, kind of becoming uh americanized in, in mm-hmm. particular ways and you know my my thesis work uh or yeah in grad school was about um uh the previous world's fair in 1893 and it talked about how uh, uh you know basically that whole event was about like creating a concept of citizen uh of american citizen of chicagoan a kind of civic identity um uh, very explicitly to kind of uh civilize the kind of uh, uh immigrants who were from the you know the mediterranean and ireland and, and etc so um and because they were all for the most part 
actually socialists, right? And and like yeah. they saw them as a kind of existential threat. And through this kind of process of Americanization, um, the, it was also hoped that they would kind of you know take a step away from their kind of uh, the, the the politics that they packed with them. Um, and I, so like it, it's interesting that these kind of causes get reduced to you know like ah oh, like he was a he was an Italian and no one knew and so like you know what's what's all good which is like yeah so I, I have to imagine uh, so far from the truth and and those those things you're just quoting and, show that and, right? and you know it's it's very similar to some of the fights around some of these Confederate monuments sure. where you know you see this historical revisionism where you yeah. know people try to say oh you know the Civil War wasn't about slavery right. and it's like then why was it in the you know yeah. every statement from you know the uh, traders yeah. that you know they were founding a country f- for slavery and and racism and it yeah. was in the like co- you know the quote unquote constitution yeah. for the uh, you know confederacy and you know just every yeah, every speech they gave was about right. this, right? <laughs> yeah, and there's been some excellent work done on that subject too. I know about like you know talking about how these things are really put up in in the kind of 50s in support of kind of Jim Crow, and like right. uh, or or in the 20s, uh, yeah, at the height of all the lynchings, right? And you know, really uh, trying to, yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, trying to uh, cover up the the real uh, yeah. truth about the horrors yeah. of slavery and and uh, you know uh, protect white supremacy yeah. Uh, yeah. through these monuments. Yeah. And uh, you know, I've been really glad to see uh, this push to take them down in recent yeah. years. Um, but clearly, we need to do more. Yeah. Uh, but also, we need to look here in Chicago right. at something like this. Yeah. Um, and and. You know, I want to kind of give you the update on. Yeah. Uh, the Chicago Reader just published an article uh, about the progress towards changing the name mm. and, and, you know, what to do with the column. Uh, John Greenfield uh, wrote it. And, uh, you know, I, I. So before we did this radio thing here, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I was, I was going to try to. Do my own follow-up, right? So yeah. I called a couple of aldermen's offices, you know, and uh, trying to get a, a quote from them. Um, and luckily, this Chicago Reader article got a hold of some of the aldermen who yeah. were able, w- willing to go on record. Um, but a lot of them told me and, and told uh, this Reader guy that um, they can't really comment on it because it's not in their ward. <sighs> right? Come on. Uh, and, and the... Aldermen who have it in their ward, uh, Sophia King in the 4th Ward and Brendan Riley in the 42nd Ward, um, you know, they, I feel like they're kind of backtracking from their earlier statements. Yeah. Their earlier statements were very, we need to rename the street, uh, we need to take down this column, we need to, you know, address uh, yeah. the, the past here. Um, but, you know, they, they gave this... Uh, Updated statement. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Uh, continuing to evaluate all options in all options in regard to both the Balboa Monument and Drive. Part of this process is meeting with all interested stakeholders so we can properly understand both the pros and cons of making changes to the statue or the street. For instance, I was initially in support of the removal of Balboa Monument due to its link to fascism. 
it, it's Link. To it's Link. Yeah, right. Uh, however, there's much to learn from displays like this, and removing it would entirely hinder a valuable historical lesson that can be used to educate many on our storied and muddled past. Therefore, we are now leaning towards keeping the monument as is, but installing a plaque at the site that would inform visitors of the monument's ties to fascism and our denunciation of it. Uh, you know, and they're collaborating on the issue. We're open to the possibility of renaming the street after another individual, and groups have been proposing names to us. Uh, we urge interested individuals with concerns or input to contact our <laughs> office. And, you know, I, I kind of, when I was talking with this uh, writer from the Chicago Reader, you know, I sent him uh, this picture, and uh, I'll show this to you, and maybe you I'll, I'll send it to you as well so you yeah. can share it. Uh, yeah, put it on the show know, notes. Uh, yeah, on, on the interwebs. Okay, so, so as I was saying, we, yeah. uh, you know, I sent uh, this uh, reporter from the Chicago Reader uh, a link to this photo. Oh, my God. Can, can you want to describe <laughs> it? Yeah, it is uh, what looks to be a, a, an American GI. Uh, taking down a, a street named after Adolf Hitler. Adolf, Adolf Hitler Strauss was that. That's the German, right? And re- I, I and replacing know. it with a uh, sign that says Roosevelt Boulevard. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, it just you know, I guess this is why they call them the Greatest Generation. Yeah, <laughs> because they actually fought fascism <laughs> instead of trying to learn from our muddled experiences with it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's certainly a lot to say about, you know, uh, how much better, you know, we could be as a country yeah. uh, and could have been in the past. Yeah. Uh, but I think part of that is figuring out, well, who do we want to spend our public money on honoring right. uh, in a you know, public setting? Yeah. And, and I think it should be a no-brainer in 2018 yeah. in Chicago— that we do not want to use public money in a public park to honor and fascist. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, there, there's so many other deserving people that you could, you know, uh, rename the street after. Yeah. I think there's a lot of questions about what to do with this Roman column, which yeah. is a piece of antiquity. Right, right, right. Which, which, for all we know, the fascist regime just straight up, like, Ganked, yeah, right, right like completely, right. Yeah. like probably stole without yeah. any sort of, uh, you know, legality yeah. involved. Yeah. Um, you know, and quite frankly, the the plaque. I mean, you know, there could be it. It could go into a number of museums that could put in a proper context. Right, right, um, yeah, because like a, a plaque doesn't necessarily do that. And when you kind of have that, you know, the 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 this the eleventh uh, year of the era of fascism, blah blah blah. Like it's just it's just a magnet for these kind of like. Uh, uh, you know, alt right a holes to kind of sh- show up and like yeah. re re like uh I don't know yeah. try to reclaim it and it, exactly yeah. and and you know this is um, what we saw in in Charlottesville was exactly that yeah um, you know as long as you have these monuments to hate yeah um, they are a magnet right to p- people who want to uh hurt others yeah. based on their skin or religion or um you know whatever right uh 
and and so you know we see that here in Chicago even with the uh, that yeah. Confederate grave site, right? Uh, where every year the uh, Sons of the Confederacy uh, yeah. have their uh, gathering there. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it, shout out to the community groups that are trying to change that into a Ida B. Wells monument, which is yeah. Um, so you know, it's it's, it's something that you know. Uh, I mean, let's face it. There's a reason why. You know, Hitler doesn't have a gravesite. Right, right. There's a reason why uh, they had to bury Mussolini in yeah. a uh, anonymous site because people kept, you know, yeah. you know, it it, it was not, uh, yeah. Right. So you know, well, th- it, these are things that, uh, you know, you hear so much from some of the people who want to defend this stuff about. Right. Oh, we have to honor our past. You know, yeah. it's important to remember the past. And I wish people would think about, well, what do we want the future to be like? Sure. Right? You know, do we want to spend the rest of our lives and our kids' lives honoring uh, despicable people just sure. because they were honored once before? Right. I think it's time that we really, yeah. uh, you know, get as a society, really took a, a deep look at, you know, who do we want to celebrate? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, there's a lot of good questions about, you know, so, uh, you know, do we really want uh, Washington Avenue named after a slave-owning president? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think, that you know, that, that can be a, a good conversation. Yeah. Um, but I think that with a fascist... Yeah, this one seems pretty in Chicago <laughs> in 2018. Yeah, you you know I think that that is a um, it's a political winner for for people. Yeah, um, I I think there are you know it's it's I'm sure it's one of those things where you know these aldermen are probably uh, thinking oh you know I don't I don't want to get blowback over a street name right. when I want to be working on. You know, getting elected to an even higher office so I can work on health care or something. Right. Right. Like, you know, and, and I, I, I see that, you know. Yeah. But, you know, I think part of how you get to there, part of how you normalize um, better, pol- you know, uh, policies and, and better politics in our country yeah. is, you know, by addressing who are we right. using public money. To honor. Right, right, right. And, the, you know, like I think all these like overture, like bad overtures to education, like it could be an educational moment in, in, in terms of like how we conceptualize politics. Yeah. And if you think about it like that, then it is no. And, you know, I also it just occurred to me, too, that, you know, we have this giant German U-boat like, you know, <laughs> at the Museum of Science and Industry. And that's yeah. a, it's a terrific exhibition that like properly contextualizes it. And like, you mm-hmm. know, um uh, and it's kind of a very like tells a very moving story of you know like people who were on the boat like and uh, people who you know sank the boat and and the, and the whole kit and caboodle. But it's it's part of this giant kind of na- curated narrative experience that like uh, does so much more than a kind of plaque. And yeah. I think that uh, I don't know that might be an interesting ex- way, way to think about this thing, right? I, I mean, I would love to see the Chicago History Museum room dedicated. Yeah to um, yeah. this issue and, and exploring the yeah. history and, and the uh, conflicts yeah. around it, uh, the multiple attempts at renaming it throughout yeah. the years. Um, 
you know, yeah, but I'd but, love to see an exhibit that covered some of these, like a, a Italian American socialists who were protesting yeah, <laughs> in 1933. Yeah. And, and, you yeah. know, uh, I would love to see the exhibit that, uh, showed all the, uh, you know, right-wing pro-fascist Italians and, and just showed how they were so wrong. Yeah, right. On every level, at every time that it's been brought up. They, yeah. they uh, I, you know, one of the things I've, I've talked about too is, you know, we talk, you know, I've been talking about how they play revisionism with Balbo and with yeah. this column. Uh, but, you know... The entire fascist regime is built on a historic or, or the ideology. Yeah, was built on a historical revisionism. Yes, you know, uh, and that's di- you know really displayed in their appropriating of this Roman column. Right, you right. know, they they were trying to project themselves as a new Roman Empire. Sure, right. Yeah, and uh, I think you know that that gets into some pretty deep questions yeah <laughs> about you know uh how do we grapple with you know quote unquote the you know the the foundations of western civilization right. you know um but i think that you know fundamentally those are questions worth talking about yeah and i think that it's really worth talking about how uh you know when people try to um you know, play fast and loose with history yeah. in order to uh, promote the hateful ideologies. Yeah. You know, this yeah. is how you end up with. Yeah. This well, and sort I'm, of stuff. I'm curious too to like you know uh, you know because because so much of this has been this renewed interest uh, in kind of monuments was precipitated by the like the events in Charlottesville, uh, you know, a year ago. And um, you know, shout out to my my friend uh, Hamza who lives in Virginia, who is at the counter protest to the Unite the Right rally. Okay, and he he uh, you know they he's been helping to organize uh, like an, an architecture competition. Um, I, I think the time for entries is closed, but about kind of ideas about like what do you do with these kind of monuments? Because right mm-hmm. now they have them kind of covered up with a tarp. Yeah, and uh, and I think that they're grappling with a lot of the same questions. So it'll be curious to see what comes out of that. Um, and and if we could kind of maybe import some of those ideas to Chicago. Yeah. I mean, I've got some ideas about what to name it. Like, and like, uh, why not like, uh, like August Spee's Boulevard, right? <laughs> I mean, like, you know, the I, I like Haymarket Martyr. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, I used to always joke that, you know, oh, after the revolution, we'll rename all the streets named after presidents after the Haymarket Martyrs. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, I, I don't think you, you need to, you know, be at that point. Sure. To, to, talk about this monument needs to go it does yeah. not it's not reflective of the politics of our city or of the moment yeah. uh, you know or the country right um and it it never was yeah uh yeah. unless you 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 know change what those yeah. politics you know unless you you know uh like i said play revisionist history right. with what yeah. it stands for um but yeah i mean i i think you know, there needs to be a, a transparent public way to address, you know, the, the issue. Uh, I think there's, you know, a lot of good Italian uh, people who could, you know, would be good ideas. Uh, I think it would be important to, um, you know, have the Ethiopian community engaged, yes, yeah. uh, considering, uh, you know, Chicago was actually the site of a lot of uh, big uh Protests from the Ethiopian community when uh, Mussolini invaded Ethiopia. Oh, interesting. 
Um, yeah, it's in uh, uh, Harry Haywood's uh, autobiography, actually. Yeah, uh. Uh, interesting read. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's there's a, a whole whole list of people. Um, and I think, you know, that that's secondary yeah. to me, right? Yeah. I, I think uh, the, you know, first thing is let's get this out of our public space. Yes. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, I, you know, we, you were talking about these, uh, Confederate monuments, yeah. right? Uh, and I would be really interested to see like what people come up with there. Um, let me just say, though, this is one of the things I think people really have to think about, uh, when it comes to any of these sort of, uh, you know, uh, monuments that, you know, we're, uh, revisiting uh is you know what is you know uh, quite frankly i don't want to see some of these confederate monuments put in a museum yeah and then five years later a republican governor gets elected and they're trotted right back out into a public square yeah um you know sometimes you just need to melt things down right (laughs) sometimes you just need to just like yeah, completely eradicated. Yeah, you know, I I don't see anyone crying when these U.S. soldiers tore down Saddam Hussein's statue in sure. Iraq, right? No one is really upset about that. Yeah, um, I think sometimes you need, you know, and it's I feel like that might be a little different with this uh, Balbo thing because there is no real it's Italian not, yeah, fascist movement in Chicago, right? Yeah. You know, it kind of goes into that category of like ancient Egyptian yes. kind of yeah, like yeah. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. There how, might be how upset are we supposed to be today yeah. about? There might know, be one person with a kind of goodbye Lenin moment where the statue is flying away like by helicopter, but, <laughs> and you know what? If they cry, yeah. so be it. I don't care. But yeah. but I don't know. I mean, like I was at the um, uh, the Field Museum not too long ago, and we were yeah. looking at all the mummies they had there. Yeah, uh, and. You know, put aside the politics of like, why are these Egyptian mummies here in Chicago, right? And the yeah. politics around that, but just sort of like it's weird that like these were like we're looking at a corpse, right? right. This was like a person. But then I kind of also realized, you know what? These were also the slave owners of ancient <laughs> Egyptian society, so I'm not going to feel too bad about yeah. their yeah. their fate. But I I think that there's the interesting dynamic of like you know it. You know, at what point is is it like dead history? Yeah, like no one's really worried about like uh, uh, pharaohs coming sure. back to enslave the Hebrews, right? right? right. But uh, you know, I, I feel like with a lot of these Confederate monuments, like there are neo Confederate movements. There is uh, the fact that our country never yeah. really grappled with the legacy of slavery. Sure. Uh, and and racism and and the Confederacy that in a way that you know would have you know really uh, prevented those sort of politics from having a resurgence. Yeah. Um, so I I feel a little differently there. Yeah. Um, I mean, with this like Roman column, I mean, like I was saying before, I mean that's uh-huh. antiquity. Yes. Yeah. There, I think there's it, a whole lot of issues there. Yeah, I think it came from Ostia, which is the port city of Rome. 
And yeah. like Asti has a very interesting history, and like, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, that that you know you could you could easily uh, you know kind of appropriate this kind of object for it, but like you know it, it's it's it, for an exhibit or something like mm-hmm. this. But also you know it's interesting because we live in this kind of like hyper mediated reality now, where uh, you know for better and for worse. And as an architect, I tend to think worse. But mm-hmm. like you know th- like what's what's in the kind of aura of the object anymore like mm-hmm. the, there there isn't anything you know it, it's mm-hmm. it's it's all about this kind of like you know system of uh, uh of, of of images and you know like loose signifiers that all get like sort of you know globbed onto each other in a weird <laughs> way and then attached to whatever yeah. is present yeah so you know like in 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 that kind of context um you know the 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 monument uh, and, and what becomes of it is 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 kind of totally totally tertiary. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I I, I kind of wish that we could have as a, as a kind of society uh, like a, a a more meaningful relationship to kind of matter. But you know, like ma- matter only matters like because people make it matter, right? And like you know, that's coming from me. I'm like a, I'm like a pretty hardcore materialist, but like you know, nevertheless. Yeah. And so like I you know I I, I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing here. Sure, but you know. It is. It, it 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 doesn't strike me as a as a great loss if this thing um, you know ends up uh, in 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 a kind of heap somewhere. Yeah, and and um, I mean that's a good point because it's like well, lots of antiquity that just buy yeah. you know send and, it and, send it back send it back put it back on uh, where it is where where it came from in Ostia. Yeah. I'm sure they'll miss it. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you know I, I think it it kind of goes back to what I was saying before. Yeah. About, um, you know, some of this stuff we don't really have to worry about. Yeah. You know, movement coming back to take this column back out. Sure. All right. And put it back in public display if yeah. it were to be put in a museum. Um, but in the end of the day, like we're talking Chicago City public money. Yeah. Being used to defend this uh, this fascist monument. Yeah. And that you know you if these aldermen think to themselves, oh, well, it's just a street name. Lots of terrible people have street names named after them. Uh, I want to focus on education. Well, there's some money for education right Right. there. (laughs) Right. Right? Right. And let me tell you, the attention that this thing is getting, it is only a matter of time before it ends up costing the city even more money, either from anti-fascist graffiti or from having to deal with a a pro-fascist rally. Right. 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 Um, I think it, it makes sense for the city to remove it on the, on the earth sooner side. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, going back to your point before uh, about you know if if it just ends up in the ash heap, yeah. You know, uh, you know, it, it, I think a lot about you know the Haymarket martyrs, um, you know, the the fight for the eight hour workday in eighteen eighty six, and, and yeah. the, you know, Chicago was the site of the you know so called Haymarket riot where um, you know the the strikers and and police. Uh, you know, had a conflict, and, yeah. and the leaders of, of this uh, rally were, you know, given a, a uh, show trial and, and convicted and hung. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's been years, you know, over a century before we had a halfway decent monument built right. uh, at that intersection. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is a story known worldwide 
for the labor yeah. movement. Yeah. Um, you know, when I go to the, the monument that's at uh, Desplaines and Randolph today, uh, there's a good chance that I'll run into someone who uh, is from out of town or sometimes out of the country yeah. coming to visit the site of, uh, you know, really yeah. one of the birthplaces of the American yeah. labor movement. And, uh, you know, people may not know that before that monument was there, for decades, there stood a very different monument. Yes. <laughs> that instead of, you know, paying honor to the labor leaders and strikers, was paying honor to the police officers who yeah. suppressed them. Uh, and, you know, you can look up photos of this old statue, and he's kind of giving a, a little bit of a salute. No. <laughs> uh <laughs> And, you know, this, like, police officer was, Yes, right, that kind statue. of salute, folks. Yeah. And, um, you know, in the 60s, people got kind of tired of it. Yeah. And the city wasn't taking it down. And there might have been a few explosions at it. Yeah. Right? Uh, and the city eventually had to move it uh, to the, uh, well, well, like, the third iteration of it. Yeah. Right? Uh, they had to move it to this police training uh center right building yeah uh you know where the other first ones are yeah who knows right yeah. um but you know what sometimes you have to invade sure. germany <laughs> take down adolf hitler uh street yeah and put up roosevelt street, right right right, right? and yeah. sometimes I, I think direct action might be needed in this yeah. case yeah uh we'll see i i hope that, you know, the mayor who once protested shirtless against neo-Nazis yeah. <laughs> would, you know, be able to stand up uh, and, and you know, get this done. Yeah, no but, kidding. But uh, I don't yeah. know. I mean, maybe he's he's more interested in, in not rocking the boat. Right. Yeah, well, and it, I think that, that uh, sort of story goes to show that, like, you know, history is, like, always being actively constructed, right? I yeah. mean, like, you know, in, in a sense, like, all history is revisionist history. It just depends on what the revision is. <laughs> and and, and uh, I think that it bodes really well for the future of humanity that, um, you know, the Italo Balbo uh, monument has one garbage plaque. And if you go to the Haymarket uh, uh, monument... They had to make the base of it bigger to accommodate all of the plaques that were donated from, you know, labor movements and unions around the world. world. And so, like, um, I think that's a that's maybe a good inspirational note to wrap (laughs) up on. And and, but I but I think that that does go to show, uh, kind of you know where where the future lies and and what uh, what past. Um, uh, those of us in the present um, are more keen on honoring and fighting mm-hmm. for. So, uh, do you have any any final wrap ups? Yeah, just uh, thanks for having me on. This is yeah. uh, a topic I've given a lot of thought to over yeah. the years, and I'm glad to share it. And uh, you know, um, you know, if people want to get a hold of me, I'm pretty easy to find online, and be yeah. happy to answer questions. Um, I think I got an email recently. Um, some. Uh, uh, Italian film student is is working on a documentary oh, about this issue. Um, you know, so I, I think uh, you know th- the enemy of fascism is is knowledge. Yeah, and I think that the more people you know are knowledgeable about the topic, I think the better. Yeah, yeah, 
For sure. Well, on that note, thanks for joining. Uh, and this is the, the, the concludes the second half of our crossover. Maybe there'll be another first half someday. I hope sure. so. Well, you know, <laughs> may, maybe we'll have our own uh, Avenger-style mega crossover someday. Uh, yes, I, I, I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> have, awesome. have all the lumpen <laughs> hosts together. Yeah, <laughs> terrific. Well, Matt, thanks so much for joining Buildings yeah. on Air. Thank you. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at... B-L-D-G-S on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.